What would you say, don't answer out loud, what would you say is the most urgent need for the church in America today? As you consider the landscape uh, in the nation where we live and churches there and what most churches believe and think and do and how church people behave, what would you say is the most urgent need for the church in America today? You might say purity, because we live in an impure culture. You, you might even say, you might pinpoint sexual purity as necessary in the church today. The statistics for pornography use among men and women in the church in America is startling. And the people of God need to be holy. Some might say integrity and honesty in financial matters, in the workplace. I mean, we should be good stewards of the things that God has given us and we should love and care about others such that we conduct ourselves well, even in the workplace. Christians should model the character of Christ, shouldn't they? Many would say that we need a greater sense of urgency in evangelism. We need to stop talking about it and actually do it. It is what Christ commissioned his church to do. And we should be active and faithful ambassadors of Christ as he's called us to be. I mean, who can argue with that? Who can argue with any of those things? They're all important, aren't they? To the church and our witness, to the people around us and to the glory of God. Still, there's a sense in which even all of those things are merely symptoms of something far more serious. What we really need is we need to know God. The church in America needs to know God. The church in Maine, let's bring it in just a little bit, needs to have a deeper knowledge of God. More than what we have now. Our church needs to know God better. And the way to know God better is to pray. To pray. We need to pray and ask God. Ask God for a deeper knowledge of himself. That we would not just know about him, but that we would know him. In Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, the Apostle Paul, based on everything he taught us in verses 3 to 14, prays. He takes everything that he has taught us so far and he turns it into a prayer. He prays that we would know God. He prays that we would learn how we can know him better and grow in our knowledge of God. And we need to learn how to pray like that so that we can know God. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline, and it's, in your, it's inside your worship bulletin, it looks like this. It has three big points that we're going to walk through. Which means, by the way, that even this passage of text could have been three separate sermons. Like the first long sentence of Paul's in verses 3 to 14, this is actually one sentence. 
This prayer in the original language is written in one sentence, verses 15 to 23. But if you look at that sermon outline, you'll see this theme, because God has chosen us and has a plan for his church. Because of those things, we are to pray for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to enlighten our hearts, to know everything about God, so that we might increasingly know God better. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. Let me read this prayer of Paul's this morning, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Think about those things just for a moment. There are three things that compel Paul to pray for the church in Ephesus. The plan of God that has been revealed, the faith and love of the saints, And the obvious right response of thanking God for these two things. First, Paul prays, for this reason. And that reason is the plan of God that's been revealed to us in verses 3 to 14. So there is going to be a fourth sermon on those verses after all. Or just a brief recap. For this reason, for what reason, Paul? Well, because you've been chosen in Christ and adopted as the children of God because that was made possible through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his blood-bought redemption of you that brings about the forgiveness of your sins, that, that God's grace has been lavished upon you. And he has revealed his purpose for you so that you'd know who you are and what you're to do and what he's doing in you. Because this is really a picture of the glorious God and everything that he's doing. And the fact that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit so that there is coming that day when you will be holy and you will be blameless before him. And you will not only see his glory, you will be part of it. Because of this, for this reason, is reason number one. This is the glorious picture that Paul has painted of us of a God who is and what he has done for us and what his plan is. Now Paul's praying that we would not only believe it, having heard it, but that we would greater understand it. It is because our sovereign God has promised to bring about his plan to completion that Paul's asking for these things to happen. The sovereign grace of God is not a disincentive to pray, well, he's going to do what he's going to do and he's all-powerful, so I guess I'll just sit here. The sovereign grace of God is the great incentive for us to pray. Pray these things. They will be answered. It will come true. And there are things that you should want from your heart because they've been placed there by the God who rules your heart. We do it every Lord's Day when we pray, thy kingdom come. 
He has promised to bring his kingdom, but we pray, thy kingdom come. His will will be done, and yet we continue to pray. Your will be done. We want to see it, Father. It's the desire of our hearts on earth as it is in heaven. What was a mystery has now been made known to us. Thank you, Paul. That God is working his plan to sum up all things in Jesus Christ, the beloved, according to his good and pleasing will, in the wisdom of his glorious grace. It's what he wants It's what pleases him. It should be what we want. It should please us. And we should pray for it more than anything. That's the first reason why Paul prays. The second reason is because of saving faith and because of love for the brethren. When Paul hears that sinners are coming to saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they love one another... He sees them as real, living proof, as incontrovertible evidence of the glorious plan of God actually unfolding. Look, it's happening. They're the ones whose sins have been forgiven. They're the ones who have been redeemed through Christ's blood. The Father has chosen them and adopted them in Christ and sealed them with his Holy Spirit to be his own treasured possession. It's happening. And the truth of their faith is evidenced by their love for the brethren. We talk about this all the time. Believe in the gospel. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel will transform you such that you live out the gospel. Saving faith, a life that attests to the saving faith that we have. Love for the brethren. Their faith is being worked out in obedience to Christ's command to love one another in John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, Jesus told his disciples, that you loved one another as I have loved you. This is the command. Because of the love of God within them, within the church, they are now able to love one another. Even as Christ has loved them. The same is true with us. True saving faith always brings transformation at the heart level. This is not mere behavior modification, but the mark of real heart transformation and the true hallmark of saving faith is that we love one another. Church, the family of God, the people for whom Christ died, we love them. That's proof that the love of God is within us. And so Paul prays for the church because God has a glorious plan for the church. We all need to hear this. Gosh, I wonder what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Paul's telling us. Paul prays for the church because he sees them as the church whom and through whom God is working out his plan. And you look around and you go, us? Yes. Us and, and all others. And so Paul prays for the church. The third reason is because God is, quite frankly, due ceaseless thanksgiving. He just is. He's glorious and he deserves thanks for who he is and he deserves thanks for what he has done. Paul is thanking God for his plan here, which is to the praise of his glory. We should too. Because his plan is for us to reflect his glory and to be part of it in Christ In Christ. How many times did we read that? I I forgot to count them up. In verses 3 to 14. In Christ. And he has 
pulled back the curtain to see it. To see the plan of God in the church so that we can live accordingly. Thank you, Father. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for revealing your glorious mystery to us. Paul is thanking God for these saints who are real people in the church at Ephesus because God has given them in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What a great model Paul is for us here. We regularly, we regularly pray together the Lord's Prayer. It could be called the Disciples' Prayer. It's sometimes called the Model Prayer. Jesus gave us a model for prayer. Paul's giving us a model for prayer here. And it is revealed to us in a couple of ways. First, Paul reveals his default attitude. It is the humble attitude of thanksgiving. Paul prays thanks. When we look at the church, we often see with our eyes what's wrong, what's lacking, what's there to criticize. Is that too harsh? Is it just me or is sometimes that you too? When you look at the church with your eyes. You know, if the Apostle Paul wrote a letter and addressed it to the saints who are faithful at Christ Fellowship Church, he would address our faith. He does it in every letter that he writes to a church. And so he would address our faith. And do you somehow think that he would say, wow, you guys... Man, Christ Fellowship, you're great. Do you think he would say, you know, you're so great. You're the greatest church I've ever written to. I'm going to write a letter to all the other churches in Maine to tell them to be just like you. Sometimes I think we imagine that the letter to our church would sound a little bit like that. But if Paul did write a letter, to all of the other churches in town. I'll bet he would say, I thank God for them because I've heard of their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. I'll bet he would say that. See, we need to have a default attitude of thanksgiving too. That's what Paul's modeling for us. Think about it. When you see God doing something wonderful in your life, you're the first person to thank him for his grace to you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. In the same way, we need to have that same quick reaction of a prayer for thanksgiving when we see God's grace in the lives of other people. In the lives of other people in our church. In the lives of other churches. Thankful to God to hear of saving faith and a love for the brethren. We have a great opportunity to do that today. It's an easy one, right? This is, a, this is a lob. This is a slow pitch. We have the great opportunity today to do that, to be thankful for God's work in other people's lives as we baptize Jacqueline and Mike. I mean, if all the angels in heaven rejoice over a single sinner who repents, surely we can be interested enough, astounded enough, joyful enough to do the same and thank him for his work in their lives. We need to look at the church through eyes of faith and give thanks. The church in Ephesus was not perfect. Their struggle to love one another, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, to even put up with one another is proof of that. Nonetheless, Paul sees the church as God's prized possession. 
for whom Paul is laboring in the gospel, and he gives thanks to God for those saints whom God has chosen to be holy and blameless in Christ. Paul's modeling prayer for us. Our thanksgiving should be like his thanksgiving. And his petitions should be our petitions. Let's look at what Paul asks God for. Beginning in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So Paul has this overarching petition. It's the big one that all the others fall under. It's that we would know God. He's praying that we would know God. He prays for the church. Yes, the church in Ephesus, but us as well. To know God better every day. Not only is this Paul's prayer, you know, it was Jesus' prayer. It was Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 3. Jesus is praying to the Father of glory that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus wants us to know God. Do you want to know God? Do you know him enough already? Any hands? Any hands for that one? Know him enough already? I'm all set. Or would you like to know him more? Here's what is true for every believer. The more you get to know God, the more you want to know God. And just how is that going to come about? It comes by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us, being to us the wisdom and revelation of God himself. Not that we would merely know about God, but that we would know God relationally, experientially. The only way for us to know God, who is spirit, is for him to reveal himself to us. So Paul prays to God, asking God to give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. His prayer is dead on target. It's exactly where it should be. It is the Holy Spirit who knows God because he is God. And it is the Holy Spirit who operates in our hearts. Deep within our hearts, the level of our soul and spirit. Because he indwells us. And we need him to open the eyes of our hearts. We need him to enlighten our soul's understanding of God. That's what Paul prays for the church. And that's what we should pray for when we pray, when we read our Bibles, when we gather for worship, and when we walk through our ordinary days, we should pray for the Spirit to enlighten our hearts so that we would understand, so that we would walk by faith and not by sight. That would help you. That would help you in your week this week. Then Paul petitions God for us to grow in the knowledge of three things in particular, having to do with hope inheritance, and power, but more specifically, the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
And what is is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? It is so sad and frustrating to watch people, people you know, people I know, make the same bad decisions day after day, react poorly to the same relational challenges, and dive deeply into the same harmful circumstances day and day and day again, all without hope in Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's just so hard to watch. Like they're beating their heads against the wall and getting nowhere. And have no comfort. What a blessing it is to live with hope in Jesus Christ. And yet, it's as if Paul is saying to us, who have hope in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the level of your hope is nowhere near the level of hope of God's calling. He's trying to stretch us in this, that we would know more the hope that we have that's the hope according to God's calling. Well, what level of hope is that? Because we would expect the following phrase maybe to describe. What is this level of hope of God's calling? But Paul just prays the next petition. Well, we have to remember that Paul's praying based on what he has revealed to us in verses 3 to 14. The hope of our calling is back in those verses. Our hope in this life is the goal of our salvation. It's the goal of our salvation. By the electing love of God, you have been called in Christ, you have been redeemed in Christ, you have been adopted in Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of the glory of God, who is your Father. Your Father. D.A. Carson writes, if you have been called, you have been saved. The hope of one's calling is therefore the aspect of one's calling or salvation for which one still looks forward to. If you are a Christian, the hope of your calling is the component of your salvation that you look forward to in the future. It's to our own loss that we think too little about our future and too much about our present circumstances. But that's kind of the way people are. It's kind of the way we are. If our hope never approaches the level of hope of our calling, we will still be saved. But between now and then, you will have more distress, more anxiety, more confusion, and far less joy than you could have. Why choose that route? So what is it that's left for us in the future? D.A. Carson? Life in the new heavens and earth in the presence of God. The hope of our salvation. Life in the new heavens is yours. It's coming. And the new earth in the presence of God. It's coming. When in the fullness of time God sums up all things in Christ, we who are in Christ will be there to see it. We will be holy and blameless before him. We will have him. And he will have us. All to the praise of his glory. If Paul prays this for the church, we should too. We should pray to know 
What is the hope to which God has called us? Paul's second specific petition is that we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That is, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints or the church. We looked at this back in verse 14. Is God our inheritance? Yes. But what Paul is emphasizing is that we are God's inheritance. When Christ returns, he will finally and fully redeem those who are God's treasured possession. The God, in verses 3 to 14, who did all of this to make us his treasured possession. Listen to Jesus praying to the Father about us in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. He says to his Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they believe that you have sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Wow. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. The gift of a redeemed humanity. We are gods in Christ. Our value as God's inheritance is not based on us, but we have value, even glorious value, because we are in Christ. Paul is praying that we would know who we are. As the church, God sees us as his treasured possession in Christ. That's who we are. We do not boast in ourselves. We have no inherent value of our own. For no other reason the grace which the Father has lavished on us, we are of inestimable value as his inheritance to him. It is our humble privilege to be his inheritance. And we should live accordingly because of the great privileges that belong to God's possession. We should live in the confidence of this and walk with resolve to the glory of his praise. That's what Paul's praying for. Let's think for a moment about this picture of us, the church, as seen with the eyes of faith. Think about that. We have no reason to complain. And we have no reason to stop short of living to the glory of God. No reason. He's revealed his plan for his church to us so that we will live with purpose and meaning and direction. We have it. Paul prays that we would. And we should too. Paul's third specific petition is not just that we would know that God's powerful, 
but that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, which is toward us who believe. God's power is a significant theme in Ephesians, and we'll see, we'll see more of it later. Paul has already painted a picture filled with the power of God in verses 3 to 14. Behold the immeasurable greatness of the power of God in verses 3 to 14. The power of his will to plan before the foundation of his world. The power of his hands then to create heaven and earth and all that dwells within. The power to render sinful hearts like a potter works with clay to render them holy and blameless. The power to crush sin and death by the righteousness of Christ. The power to adopt through the love of Christ. The power to forgive sins through the grace of Christ. The power to seal us and protect us and keep us by the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is the power of wisdom and revelation that we may know our Father and our Savior better. The power of God is immeasurably great and it is at work within us, the church. So we know with absolute confidence that the good work which he began in us, he will bring to perfect completion according to his plan by his power at the day of Jesus Christ. Confidence. The more we know that, the deeper we will know our Father. And the deeper we will experience the power of God in our daily lives and in the life of this local church. Can you imagine that? The power of God on display here and the salvation of sinners and the building up of the saints through the proclamation of his gospel all for his glory. Paul continues his prayer but he, he's no longer petitioning God for things. He's meditating on the power of God in Christ and he's expounding on the glorious plan of God in Christ. He's exalting Christ to help us know and love him Better. Pick up a halfway through verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, this is truly mind-boggling. The immeasurably great power of God that is at work in each of us who believe is the very same power that God worked in Jesus Christ. Pause. Right here is where we usually disconnect. The power that God worked in Christ is the very same power that God is working in us. Since it is written in the Bible, we think it is in some way, at least theoretically, true. Because I believe the Bible's true. 
But I just can't seem to believe that the power of God is at work in me in any real practical sense. Not the same power that he worked in Christ. And so when I read that verse, I tend to read it as poetry. Some unattainable theological truth, but not as revelation, which is what it is. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is enlightening the eyes of our hearts so that we would understand that the, world, that the, the might that God worked in Christ himself, he's working in us. And now you know why Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts that we might know and understand and believe and live by the power of God. Because we just won't grasp it. We need help. Because Paul can only say so much, so often. And he wants us to actually experience God's power in its immeasurable greatness in our lives. So he prays for the Spirit to take over. Spirit, you do it. I've said it, now you take over. Enlighten their hearts so that they would believe. And he goes on to give us two examples of the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work in Christ so that we would see it. The working of God's great might in Christ's resurrection and the working of his great might in Christ's exaltation or his ascension. Now, we are totally comfortable with the truth that Jesus' Father worked his great might in the resurrection of his Son from the grave. We're totally fine with that. The undoing of death, the undoing of the destruction of sin and the first fruits of our resurrection, we believe that. And we're totally comfortable that the apostles watched as Jesus ascended from the mountaintop up into the sky and was received by his Father in a cloud. We believe that. But we just can't seem to bring ourselves to believe that that same power is being worked in us by our same Father. There's the connection. We're children of the same Father now. Why wouldn't he be working the same power in us? Even though he already has. He has raised us, spiritually dead people, to spiritual life. And he did it in a way that pleases him, by granting us saving faith in his son who paid the just penalty for our sins on the cross. And in the same way, he has promised to resist, uh, he has promised us to resist proud, excuse me, he has uh, promised to resist the proud but to exalt the humble. That's what he's promised. Those who humble themselves in Christ We are now God's children, and he withholds no good thing from us, including the extent of our Father's immeasurable power. You know, it's like, my my dad can bench press 200 pounds. Well, well, my dad can bench press 300 pounds. Well, well, my father can bench press the universe. (laughs) But he doesn't have to. He just thinks about it, and the universe bench presses itself. So like Paul, we must pray for deeper understanding of what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power so that we would better know and love our Father. (laughs) 
Here's something fun to think about. When Jesus condescended from heaven to take on flesh, he became the God-man, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. The Godness of Jesus was always of divine nature, and the manness of Jesus was human nature. But at his resurrection, Jesus' human nature was glorified. His human nature was made fit for the heavenly places. And Jesus is now in his glorified body in a particular location at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. You know, in the heavenly places there are levels of authority of which we know very little from Scripture. Although popular books and movies are full of them. That's a very insightful aspect of a fallen world, isn't it? It is. There are demonic powers and there are seraphic powers in this world and in the heavenly places. And as I've mentioned before, the Ephesians were fearful of such powers. They lived in a magical, cult-like Roman mythology society. They feared those powers. And we'll talk about that more in chapter 3 when Paul does. But over every rule and authority, every power and dominion, and every title and name, both now and forever, Jesus is above them all, Paul says. Jesus is above them all. There's no reason to fear them. Because he's above them all by the power of God. It's by the power of God that Jesus is elevated to the Father's right hand. He has greater power and greater authority and a greater name. He's the name above all names at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord on the day of his coming. Jesus is not part of Roman mythology. He is not just a memory from the past. He's alive. He laid down his body his sin-atoning sacrifice on the cross of his own accord. He's taken it up again in his life-giving resurrection of his own accord. He's conquered our enemies of sin, death, and the devil, and our faith in him dispels our fear of them. No fear. No fear because we're in the power of God. And his divine and glorified nature is at the right hand of God. And, listen, we shall see it. All the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Oh, Moses, Lord, show me your glory. But he, he didn't really get to see his glory. A little bit of its glow. And even that made him glow. Brothers and sisters, we will see it. And we will be in awe of him. That's why Paul is telling us this now. So that we'll be in awe of him now. Paul uses that message of a, um, image of a footstool and the plan and purpose of God. God has put all things under Christ's feet. But this is still a plan in progress. This is part of the already not yet of the kingdom. Jesus is ruling now and will perfectly rule when he comes again at the consummation of his kingdom. Then all of his enemies will be his footstool. Now look at what Paul prays about the church and the plan of God. Paul declares that the power of Christ over all things is for the church for the church. All of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ. And all of his sovereign power is for the church. 
That should, that should straighten your back just a little bit. That, that should give us Christians a spine. It's not just Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and his church and the glory of God. Paul declares that Christ is head over everything, meaning he exercises sovereign power and authority over everything. To say that Christ is head over his own body makes total sense, but it's a little mind-boggling to reveal that Christ is head over his body, and his body is the church. Somebody's got to do one of those, what? He said, what? Christ is the head and his body. His body is the church. How does Paul know that? Because when he, went, when he met Christ on the Damascus Road in a bright light, Jesus said to Paul, then Saul, who was persecuting the church, why are you persecuting me? It's the first lesson Paul learned. That Christ's body is the church. Paul declares that Christ is head over everything meaning he exercises sovereign power and authority over everything. And it makes total sense in the plan of God now, doesn't it? Now that we've read verses 3 to 14, this makes sense. Christ is the head of his, his body, the church, to ensure that all of his sovereign grace is exercised for the good of God's chosen possession, the church. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are his, and he is ours. So why is Paul praying for the church to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him and the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we would know this? Why is he praying this? Because if you will grow in the knowledge of God in these things, you will never, never wonder if you have worth, value, purpose, or meaning again. It is not that we have self-esteem. We have something far greater. We have esteem in the eyes of our Father in Christ. And so Paul is praying for us to know God, and we should too. We should pray to know this God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are our sovereign God. We thank you that you do as you please. We thank you that you please 
to do good to us. We thank you even as we think of the church knowing that as Christ came to seek and save the lost, there is a number that no man can count who continue to enter the gates of your church, Father, to become your children, to become your treasured possession, all for your glory, because it's all given to us in Christ. And so we pray that you would indeed give us the Spirit, that we might know you, and that we might love you. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.